สาบุวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังนมังสังขังนมัสสะสมัยถูกกับ the summoner life and the image of the bowl and robe 
the bowl and robe symbolizes the summoner life, the one who has uh, made the gesture of renunciation from the world. And it doesn't just mean to say giving up, having money to go and buy the food and the you know, new pair of jeans or whatever when you want them. Uh, that's the form. But, of course, the spirit of renunciation, as Ajahn Punya and I have been talking about over the last few weeks, is the uh, impulse that renunciation practice uh, gives us, the impulse to let go of self-seeking, the cultivation of me and my way, which is we all know is so painful and tedious. And so reflecting on this, the, the life of the samana and what it means, uh, the, it's uh, an interesting task that we are engaged in at the moment with transporting this tradition from Asia into the Western culture and I think uh, for all of us it's important to, to not allow our minds to be too focused on the form side of it. The form has its place, yes, uh, but to remember the spirit behind the form. And my understanding of the word samana, although I'm not a Pali scholar by any means, my, my understanding of the word samana is it comes from the same root as the word samatha, uh, which is to be stilled. And a samana is somebody who is stilled. And, and the Buddha in many places on many occasions talks about the characteristic of a samana. It's not just uh, wearing a robe and having an arms bowl. In fact, he talks most explicitly that uh, wearing a robe and having an arms bowl, but inwardly indulging in unwholesome thoughts and being heedless does not mean you're not a samana. He defines the samana as is one whose heart is at peace, pure, contained, blameless. So there's a distinct reference in the Dhammapada where, uh, in fact, the Buddha talks about uh, somebody who is on the outer level very flamboyant in their dress, and this is, this is not an obstruction to progress on the path. But you know, what is the conducive with progress on the path is having a heart that is at peace, pure, contained, restrained, blameless. This uh, distinguishes a samana. In fact, the Buddha sometimes uses these different words, samana, brahmana, bhikkhu. He uses these words almost like synonyms sometimes. And in fact, in that verse, says this, is a, this is a brahmana, a samana, a bhikkhu. And uh, you know, the brahmana is the, is the contemplative. The samana is the renunciate. The bhikkhu is the monk. And, uh, and the Buddha often used these words as sort of like synonyms. And what is being pointed to is not the form of somebody who shaved their head and got a, a begging bowl, but the truth seeker. Yeah. Somebody who, who has heard the deepest questions that our heart comes up with and is heeding those questions. We all have those questions. All human beings have those deep, troubling questions. That what is really worth honouring in life? What is really worth honouring in life? That's a, you know, we, can, we can see all the, the things that tempt us to follow them, uh, to give our attention to this and that. And, and so, but what is really honourable? What is worthy of honour?
Well, one of the things that's worthy of honour is, in fact, honouring that question. Really, when that question arises, to honour that question, to listen to that question, to receive that question, what is worthy of honour? And so, you probably will have heard me comment many times, it's in the first stanza of the Mahamangala Sutta, Pujaja Pujaniyanam, showing devotion to that which is worthy of devotion, or puja, could also be said, honour that which is worthy of honour. So how do we know what is worthy of honour? Well, the Buddha holds us up. That state of mind, that state of heart, which is pure, contained, blameless. Now, yes, the outer form of the samana, the convention of the samana, monks and nuns, those who have chosen to uh, leave the conventional household life and uh, live the life of renunciation as professional renunciates, that the Buddha said, conduces with uh, giving energy, giving focus to, to the pursuit of purity and containment and blamelessness. But we don't want to uh, fall prey to mistaking the form as being the point. It's, uh, in our overly materialistic society, as I was saying, we can easily do this, and monks do this, nuns do this. You know, the first few years as a monk is you know, because we're brought up in a, you know, in an irreligious, secular society, most of us. We, you know, we, we think the form is it, and we can get busy worrying about the color of our robes. And, and, uh, you know, and, and not, even, not just in this culture, but also I remember in Thailand, I remember when I was living at Wapapong, there were, there were two monks there, they were brothers, and, and they were so fastidious about keeping their rules that they stood out like a sore thumb. They, were, they, were, they thought that they were super strict. In fact, they were super strict, but they weren't actually very harmonious. They would always do things according to their interpretation of the rules. And, okay, it's important to consider the rules that the Buddha laid down and to keep them uh, with, with definitely with respect and commitment. But there's a lot of the minor rules which, quite frankly, are open to interpretation. And, and there's various rules about how you're supposed to wear your robes. And one of these rules says the robes have to be worn even all round, is the translation. And so these two monks, uh, they would wear their robes in what was the most peculiar style. You know, it's almost as if they stood in front of the mirror to make sure that their, the hem of their robes was all perfectly even. And, and they stood out as being distinctly different from everybody else. But they considered that they were being very strict. Well, they were being very strict on the level of the form, and, and I hope that their strictness uh, conditioned to their well-being. But the uh, immediate effect was one of being very disharmonious, and in fact they didn't seem like very happy chappies. Uh, and that is one of the risks where we, where we mistake the form for being the important point and miss the spirit. So when Ajahn Sumato is commenting on the life of the Samana, you don't want to just read it as somebody who's living on alms food, which is a great blessing if one has the opportunity to do that. But these words, the, you know, the Brahmana, the Samana, the Bhikkhu, it's talking about the inner renunciate, the inner contemplative, the inner truth seeker. And so when the scriptures, again in the Mahamangala Sutta later on, it says, Samana Nancha Dasanang, Etang Mangala Mutamang. The sight of a Samana is the greatest blessing. 
So what's so great about seeing some guy walking around wearing a robe with a begging bowl? Well, actually seeing somebody walking around with a begging bowl may not be so amazing in and of itself, but that within us, which has the capacity, or that within us which longs for purity, for stillness, for containment, for blameless, it's that within us which is a truth seeker, all of us, whatever the form of our life, the truth seeker within us, when we see the outer truth seeker, that within us gets quickened. Yeah. Or there's potential for that. Yeah. That's why people actually like making offerings to monks and nuns. Because that within them, which is a monk or a nun, that within them, which is a contemplative, that within them, which is a truth seeker, gets nourished. On an outer level, what they're doing is giving nourishment to a monk or a nun, for which we're very grateful. But one of the reasons why it feels good is because their inner contemplative, their inner truth seeker, is getting nourished by making that offering. That's why it feels different from making offerings to, to somebody out of need. You know, there are people you, you meet who, people are homeless people, destitute people, and it's suitable and appropriate if one has the means, of course, to support and contribute to relieving such people. Definitely. However, when you do something like that, it feels different from when you're giving out of respect and gratitude. And so that's another sign of the summona, that the, a true summoner, one who has accessed that which is inherently pure, that which is inherently contained, that which is inherently blameless, that such a being will have and will express gratitude. The contemplation of, of gratitude, you know, we, we read about it and it's uh, held up by, in all spiritual traditions as a, as a virtue, something worth cultivating. But again, in our overly materialistic society, we can easily fall into the mistake of thinking that because the spiritual disciplines and all the great teachers encourage cultivating gratitude, that we have to do something to become grateful we have this, then, this ideal that we hold up and then we judge ourselves as being ungrateful. Yeah. I know the feeling, you know, oh, I'm ungrateful, I should become more grateful. Well, we have to be, again, have to be very careful from relating on that idealistic level and bring it back to you know, what is the spiritual life, which is here and now, in terms of seeking truth, in terms of honouring that which is worthy of honour, in terms of honouring reality, the truth that is, it's not necessarily judging ourselves for how we are and then getting caught up in more becoming, trying to become something we think we should be. But heeding the teachings about how to find that which is inherently pure, that which is inherently already blameless, and trust in that. To let go of that which is extra. Instead of imposing this goal of becoming more grateful or more pure or more blameless. Yeah, to let go of even these ideas. You know, it can feel very threatening. When we really get down to doing the spiritual practice. Instead of just theorizing about it. Spend years and years, we could spend a whole life thinking about how we should be. But when it comes to 
actually doing it, who are actually daring to let go of our ideas of how we should be and just trusting and watching, trusting and knowing, trusting and awareness, trusting and here and now just watching, no opinion whatsoever, no judgment about how confused or mixed up or wretched or, or angry or sad or whatever state my heart or mind might be and no opinion whatsoever, just refuse to move on it. To dare to do that, to refuse to move with a reaction, with whatever appears in mind. Knowingness has that potential. Awareness has that capacity to simply see, to simply know. And that awareness has within it the gratitude, has within it the blamelessness, has within it the purity. It is inherently pure and blameless, that awareness. But it takes a real gesture of renunciation, a real daring willingness to let go of the familiar, all the ideals and all the ideas of how we should be, and to trust in just knowing. But that's what the invitation is. That's what the teaching is about, is daring to do that. And when we do it, well, then there's a natural expression, not an artificial, well, I've got to make myself grateful and I'll do this and make myself grateful. There's a natural experience of gratitude. I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago, a friend in America who visited earlier this year, uh, an elderly friend. He's over, over 80. He was relating to me. He was so excited that he wanted to tell me about this experience he had when he was visiting here. And he started to tell me how when he arrived, he was told that he had to keep the eight precepts and not eat in the evening. And quite frankly, I was horrified. And I was, you know, about to try and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't know who told you that. I mean, if, you know, if you're 80 years old, you, by all means, eat in the evening. And, uh, but he didn't give me a chance to say that. He was so excited he wanted to share this experience. And I, I don't know who it was who told him that. But um, anyway, he, he had a, a, some difficulty with sleeping. And, and, and for a lot of people in are 80, of course, you know, the, the digestion's not working so well. And so he was really dreading this experience. And, but what he chose to do, he told me, what he chose to do was just to trust in doing the practice. Don't assume that you can't do it. You know, just because you haven't done it in the past doesn't mean to say you can't do it now. Everything's changing. Everything's uncertain. Just trust in the practice. Just go into it with a heart of trusting and letting go of assumptions, and do it. Just do it. And, uh, and he did it. And he just, now he's just bubbling with gratitude. He, not only did he actually sleep very well, not only did he find he could go without food in the evening, but he also, he said, discovered a whole new approach to practice. Whereas before, and it was his words, he was saying, actually before, he wasn't really doing it, he was just thinking about it. And this man's been practicing for years, and I've been on retreats for years. But he said, when you really experience in the body the actual letting go, you move into a different dimension. He told me, he says, whatever, you must make sure that, uh, please, and he encouraged me, please make sure you encourage people to keep the eight precepts when they come to the monastery. Because it's a different experience. And, and nobody else is actually teaching this. Well, very few people are, are encouraging or teaching this. And so... But what was uh, so beautiful about that was besides the fact that he's now discovered a new approach to dealing with other difficulties in his life was this wonderful and natural experience of, of gratitude. And, 
And that's the sign of actually somebody who is moving in accordance with Dhamma, who is living in accordance with Dhamma. And in our own lives, we don't have to try and become more grateful. There are things we can do which, which make us susceptible to gratitude arising. That's true. You know, we can encourage ourselves to do things and to live in a way which makes us susceptible to the feeling of gratitude arising. But let's be careful about creating this ideal about how we must become uh, more grateful just because the teachers tell us we have to do it. I was, uh, uh, I was really uh, surprised and still am sometimes. Uh, it does catch me off guard when, when uh, people make offerings uh, to the Sangha and they express gratitude for the opportunity to give. Certainly when I first came across this, it was most peculiar. It really contradicted uh, images that I had when, you know, when somebody gives you something, well, it's the receiver who's grateful. And yet time and time again, I've experienced it and continue to experience it, uh, not just in Asian culture, but also in, uh, in, in our culture now. More and more people who've been practicing for longer and have the heart of awareness alive within them, yeah that there is a real natural heartfelt gratitude for the opportunity to give out of respect, to meet somebody who you want to give out of respect to. And I can reflect on this myself when an incident many years ago now where uh, you might have heard me relate this story before, uh, my good friend uh, Kitty Saro was sick, very sick at the time. And uh, he was living at Chithurst and I was, I was living in Devon. And somebody was uh, visiting us in Devon, was going back to Chithurst. And just before they left, I had the impulse that I wanted to give something for Kitty Saro um, out of respect for our friendship, but also out of well-wishing. And I didn't have any mu- anything much to give him. But somebody had just given me a nice jar of honey, uh, probably an uh, organic really super-duper healthy, homegrown uh, Devon honey or something like that, something very yummy, and, uh, and probably I wasn't keen to give it away. In fact, I remember distinctly I wasn't keen to give it away. But I had the initial impulse to give it away. But after the initial impulse to give it away, uh, there was this greedy, selfish impulse that, well, you know, I don't often get honey. You know, perhaps there's something else I can give to Kitty Sorrow. And then, of course, I got caught in a dilemma well, I should give it, and I don't want to give it, and should I give it, and should I not give it? Should I override this greedy impulse? And, you know, the teaching says you should be grateful, and I get caught in this tussle. And, and I do remember on that occasion, I just solved it by just kind of almost thrusting it on the person, you know, and just said, just give this to Kitty Sarah. And made myself do it. And uh, every time I think about that over the years, when I think about it, I feel good. There's a sense of gladness that I had the opportunity to do that. And it wasn't just because somebody else was telling me to do it. Yes, it took some encouragement to do it. And yes, it wasn't a totally pure motivation to do it. But there was some wholesomeness in there. And by whatever, whatever it was that encouraged me to actually follow that impulse and to give it, gave rise to this gladness, this gratitude. You know, the gratitude... The opportunity to give, the opportunity to cultivate virtue is something that one, uh, when it's a real thing, one naturally feels grateful for. 
So in contemplating uh, the cultivation of gratitude, as Ajahn Sumato uh, vividly expresses in, in that uh, comment on the verse, the calendar this, this month, uh, let's be careful that we don't turn it into yet another burden, uh, something else we have to become, something else we have to do. There are exercises, there are practices we can do that, as I said, make us susceptible to gratitude arising. But I would suggest that the spirit of the practice that we're doing is to wait for this to arise naturally. Even if we do feel ungrateful, a miserable, kind of greedy, self-seeking, grumpy, horrible me, even if that's what we find when we come to meditate, rather than judging it and trying to bypass it and trying to become all spiritual, receive it. Receive it. Awareness does not make a problem out of being a miserable, grumpy, selfish so-and-so. Awareness doesn't mind in the slightest. It's just like, you know, if you're a miserable, grumpy, selfish so-and-so and and you went to see the Buddha, what do you think the Buddha would say? I don't like you. (laughs) The Buddha didn't follow preferences. The Buddha wasn't fooled by preferences. The Buddha was pure awareness. The Buddha's consciousness was not limited by the habits that we have that impose constrictions on consciousness. The Buddha had found that way of letting go of all restrictions, all contractions, all inhibitions of consciousness. And so there was the natural purity, the natural blamelessness, the natural peace. So the Buddha was the archetypal summoner with a heart at peace that is pure, restrained, blameless. So that is really worthy of honour something really worthy bowing down to. Uh, So thank you very much this evening for your attention. (coughs)